sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The Democrats don't care about facts. They don't care that the, there was no collusion. Remember, the last Congress, more than 60 Democrats voted for impeachment before the Mueller report ever came forward. You listen to the new freshmen said the only reason why they ran was to impeach the president. For too long, America hasn't been treated fairly by Mexico, by China. We know about the theft of intellectual property. We know about the stealing of technology. Um, we know that yeah, they have right. not treated us in a decent and fair way. And that is true with Mexico as well. Well, people ask me questions like you. You're asking me a question. Don't ask me the question if you don't want me to talk about it. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we have a wonderful program for you. We're going to be chatting with Clay Risen. He's a senior opinion editor from the New York Times. He's going to join us to chat about his new book called The Crowded Hour. It's out June 4th. And uh, you're going to want to hear uh, the, this is this connects up to our foreign policy and what we're doing as a nation and uh, we're really excited to have him on the program. We're also going to be chatting about these tariffs that are going to go on to Mexico. Um, the iTunes thing, we're going to delve into that. Like, will iTunes be around? How do we know? And then we're obviously, we have to talk about the comments, which we're starting off the show with right now. The president was giving an interview, so taking questions from a British reporter because he's in Great Britain. And that reporter asked about the fact that Meghan, Markin's, Me- Meghan Markle, the American princess, as she's called, um, mother to Harry and, uh, you know, or sorry, the son, wife to Harry, mother to Archie, um, that she'd made these comments while he was in, in running for the presidency. And then when he became the president, that she would, if he became the president, she'd leave America. And what's so interesting about this is that celebrities say this a lot and celebrities have said this about both presidents from both political parties. But in this particular instance, um, you know, obviously they had to ask Trump and get him on camera and he didn't know the question was coming and see what he's going to say. And he does have a tendency to be very, very he snaps back quick. He's very direct. And when he does that, it gives them a good soundbite that they can then make news for days and days and days instead of reporting on real things that affect real Americans. So. He said something that um, was pretty typical for him, but they've mischaracterized it. So did he use the word nasty? Yes. Was he speaking of Meghan Markle? Well, her comments, yes. But let's, let's take a listen, and then we're going to kind of delve into this. We're also going to get into the president's acknowledgement of Pride Month. I know that was something that we kind of touched on last week, and American Family Association has issued a statement, and I want to share that with you as well. And then we're going to kind of talk a little bit about Biden and Sanders because they're the only two real contenders. Um, We do have some audio from uh, Liz Warren um, where she gets accused of being like Rachel Dozel by a black radio host or extremely popular morning show uh, for uh, urban radio up in New York. And so, uh, you know, we. I think I think she's toast. I think she's wasting her time running for president. But, you know, she's she's got time. She's going to burn it. So here we are. It's President Trump. He's speaking to British Broadcast Corporation and he gets asked this question about Meghan Markle. It's number one. Uh, Meghan, who's now the Duchess of Sussex. Sussex right. uh, we've given her a different name. She can't make it because she's got maternity leave. Are you sorry not to see her because she wasn't so nice about you during the campaign? I don't know if you saw that. I don't. I didn't know that. No. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, I, I hope she's okay. Uh, I did not know that. No. She said she'd move to Canada if you got elected. Turned out she moved to Britain. Well, that would be good. There are a lot of people moving here. So what can I say? No, I didn't know that she was nasty. Is it good having an American princess then, Mr. President? Is that well, I think sort of helped the links? I think it's nice. I think it's nice. And I'm sure she'll do uh, excellently. She'll be, uh, she'll be very good. She'll be very good. I hope she does. So what he said there was... I didn't know she was nasty to me. In other words, nasty comments. Not that, oh, I didn't know she was a nasty person or she's nasty, period, a descriptor of her entire person. He was discussing her comments about him and how she would leave the country if he were elected. And he said, I didn't know she was nasty towards me. He hadn't heard. Now, is this news? That That's the first thing 
that pops into my mind is, hey, um, out of all the different things that we could be talking about, all the different things that could be real news, is that what this we're going to waste the entire weekend on? The president is in Great Britain taking care of the special relationship, as it's called, the nickname for the relationship between the, the Brits and the Americans, us upstarts who, you know, we left, we slammed the door in their face after kicking them in the shins and broke off and formed our own unique entity. And we're friends with them. And they're still obviously a very, very powerful nation, but they're nothing like they were back when we were a part of their country. So the special relationship, and this is something that has been, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a problem because the younger Brits are very, very liberal. They're very much Obama sycophants. And when you've got the president going over for a visit and spending time with the queen and Prince Charles, her son, who's the, you know, heir apparent, it's, it's news what they're doing there. I'd even say it's more news what Melania Trump is wearing than the president's opinion of Meghan Markle, who, again, She's an American citizen. She's married to one of their royal family. She's now given birth to, you know, I think Archie is number seven in line to the throne. So he's number seven under his dad is number six um, in the order of precedence. So again, even if he had said she's nasty, she's a nasty person. Is it is it news? Is this the most incendiary thing we've heard the president say? And. So I've, I've seen some people making, well, when everything that President Obama said, people got mad about it. Well, it was crazy when he said the police acted stupidly. It was his opinion, but it offended a lot of people. And that was news. I kind of thought that was blown out of proportion, too. I, In fact, I dare say that blowing that out of proportion is part of the reason why we see every little thing about Trump. Every little thing he says gets blown out of proportion. He can't have an opinion about anything without it being blown, you know, sky high to epic proportions. I just don't see it. I don't see how this is the big deal that it's been made out to be, especially since you heard the audio. It's not that he said she was nasty. He said, I didn't know she was nasty towards me during the campaign. But he said otherwise very nice things about her. If he thought she was nasty, why would he say, oh, I hope she's all right. I hope she, you know, I hope she's feeling well. Why would he, why would he say all of that if he thought she was a nasty person? So non-issue. I know it will continue to be touted and it'll be just one of those other things. People say the president has lied 10,000 times, blah, blah, blah. You know what? I, I'm just exhausted by it. I'm tired of this, this being the way that the world works. Um, so let's move on to this statement. American Family Association has actually issued a statement it's in the form of a press release. Um, and this is via AFA President Tim Wildman. He says that President Trump should stand firm against any legislation that threatens religious freedom. So President Trump acknowledged and celebrated LGBT Pride Month on Friday. And he issued, um, you know, basically the proclamation. He also issued an L-Eyed for the end of uh, Ramadan. He did a bunch of different ones, Black Food Month, you know, so a bunch of different ones went out over the over the last, you know, couple of days. Um, celebrating this, that, and the other. The quote from Tim Wildman is, homosexuality is not something the president should celebrate. It's unnatural, unhealthy, and immoral behavior. We hope he will continue to stand firm against the so-called Equality Act and any legislation that threatens religious freedom. Such legislation will use the full force of the federal government to punish Americans who don't celebrate the LGBT political agenda. And... I couldn't agree more. I was not happy. In fact, I sent out a tweet, just one word. What? You know, why? Because the the White House press office has the option of celebrating or not celebrating. And, and just to show you how futile it is to try to attempt to kowtow to the liberal agenda, he sends out this notification celebrating Pride Month and the liberals promptly start roasting him and going in on him on all the social media sites. So then over at Mediaite, the mouthpiece of the left, they actually have a piece up that says uh, President Trump sends out proclamation for LGBT Pride Month and is promptly eaten alive or something like that, something to that effect. So there's no appeasing these people. If you're not for the LGBT agenda and if you're not for the complete redefinition of gender, marriage and the elimination of Christians from public life, 
then you're not going to get you can you can proclaim you can you can say happy birthday, Merry Christmas. Um, you're beautiful. I like your shoes, whatever you think you want to say. And they're still going to be where they are, which is they don't want to hear it. They don't they don't want to hear anything from him. So I think it was a waste of his time. And, and it makes me. Some would say he had to do it. I don't think he has to do anything. There's been plenty of stuff where he said, you know what? I'm not participating in that. I'm not participating in it because it makes no sense to me to be a part of that. He eliminated the Paris Climate Accord. He's done a whole bunch of things that angered liberals. So I don't see why he had to go down that road. Uh, so pivoting over, um, there's this whole iTunes story. And by the way, if you haven't checked um, online for during this trip, there's been already one note outfit of note. And I, I do like noticing what uh, Melania Trump what she decides to do with her clothing. She actually wore a white suit with black trim and a white hat with black trim. And apparently it was an homage to princess Diana. So it's over at the daily mail and it says it's the, well, it wasn't black. It's Navy, uh, crisp Navy and white ensemble for lunch at Buckingham palace. It was a favorite combination of princess Diana. And, uh, it, I think it's, it's nice of her to have that kind of like that. That's meaning that only people who are royal watchers would kind of catch. But I think it's really nice for her to do something like that. It just shows that she's very thoughtful and she doesn't get any credit for it. Um, and she gets no credit um, at all. But anyway, so I'm 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 kind of disturbed by by the, the whole the way they've they've branded the entire trip. It just can't be that he's on a state visit and he's visiting our good friends and, and you know, nation state that we have a, a relationship with. He it has to be everything bad about it. Um, I'm on the White House press list and I was watching. They've sent some pictures during throughout the day. They have been all over the place having lunch, meeting with this one, meeting with that one. And it hasn't been nasty. It's been Francesca Chambers for the, the most part for today. But um and you know they're ahead of us. So the the at four p.m. their time, the first couple in Prince Charles and his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, posed for photos in front of a fireplace in the stately stone house across from Buckingham Palace. And Charles was printing or pointing out some of the items on the wall. They also took them for a tour where they got to see some of the most important like artifacts that the British save and and kind of put out on display. And it was a unique kind of conglomeration like hand-picked items and one of the items was a it's like a pewter horse that was given to them it was given to uh her highness the queen last year when the trumps came through so kind of like you gave me this last year take a look at it you know it's among our most favorite items that we showed to visiting dignitaries so they looked at that um and there's a there's a bunch of different different ones traveling with the president um and it's a state visit that's going to last for a few days and so the, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm looking for is that they're going to leave after this three-day state visit to the UK, which is time to coincide with the 75th anniversary of D-Day, that there might be some further announcement about, because we don't want them buying their oil, the Europeans buying their oil from uh, Russia. We want them to buy their oil and natural gas from the United States because of our close relationship and partnership. So I was hoping that there would be something along the lines of that as an announcement, as opposed to all this chat about whether or not he thinks she's uh, nasty or what have you. Um, it just, again, they're just going to do what they're going to do. So I wanted to share for the encouragement today. So I have this new book that I got, 1001 Surprising Things You Should Know About God by Jerry McGregor and Marie Priss. And I love this book. It's got a whole bunch of fantastic things and obviously a thousand and one fantastic things. But number six is a continuation of a theme we've been sharing here on this program. And it is the Christian God, our Father in heaven, is omniscient, holy, loving, kind, and omnipotent, knowing all about humanity's needs and being unable to excuse sin, but able to take humanity in our fallen condition and into fellowship with himself because he is loving and kind fantastic and encouraging. All right, we'll be back with our first guest right after this.
Here's American Family Association President Tim Wildman. Lynn Ingram and Jim Duncan, two Texans, support and believe in our ministry here at AFA and AFR. We know more about the laundry business than anything else. We know a little bit about a lot of things, but we know a lot about the laundry and dry cleaning business. They created a laundry detergent to sell to folks to support AFA. We just want to be able to provide a product that can be used by AFA to support the ministry. When you wash your family's clothes with Redeem Clean Laundry Detergent, you can take great satisfaction in knowing that you're supporting the vital work of the American Family Association. It's a unique way to increase your giving to AFA. For clean laundry and support of a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. Learn more about the Redeem Clean products when you visit redeemclean.afastore.net. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. One of the saddest things I've ever heard about was a preacher whose testimony was one big lie. The tragedy is that so many people believed in him. One prominent TV ministry featured him. He was traveling and speaking all over the country. Then things began to unravel. People began checking out his testimony. Slowly but surely, it was discovered that not only was his testimony a lie, but his whole life was a lie. Today, he's out of the ministry, but many people were damaged by his deception. Lying is a credibility destroyer. Why do we lie? There are three reasons and probably many more, but these are three big ones. One, we lie because we're afraid. We're afraid of the consequences. Secondly, we lie because of a hunger to be accepted or to impress others. Then thirdly, I think people lie because of unchecked ambition. There's something they really want, and the ends justify the means. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, lying is on the list of the seven things that God hates. Listen to these words. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him haughty eyes, and the second on his list is a lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. Think about that. The God of the universe hates lying. It doesn't say that it annoys him. It doesn't say that it's a nuisance to him. But the Bible says that the God of the universe hates lying. Really, it's very easy to understand because lying is a contradiction of the very nature and character of God. He is the total truth. Well, here's what I want you to remember and do today. Let's commit ourselves to speaking and living the truth. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being here today. Find out more at AFR.net, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, and OneNewsNow.com. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program, Clay Risen, Senior Opinion Editor at the New York Times and author of the new book, The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and The Dawn of the American Century. Clay, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So why'd you write this book? Uh, well, you know, it started when I was a kid, and my Boy Scout troop uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, was uh, was called the Rough Riders. So I always knew that this was uh, a story, you know, and, and a lot of our stuff, that all you know, our, our insignia was all Theodore Roosevelt. And so I sort of knew this story uh, in a very general way. And uh, later on, when I became a journalist and started writing history, came to me that that was something that I really wanted to explore. And so I went back and started digging and just finding great stories about these men and, and about Theodore Roosevelt and, and about the war that I felt just had to be written down in the book. Okay, so you have this childhood perspective, and then, but in, in what I've read about the book, it actually connects the beginning of American imperialism and kind of gives us a little bit of a... I don't know, like predictor, predictors of sorts for where we're headed in 2020? Well, I think that it, it I think the war, the Spanish-American War, really set the, the model for how America looked at the world uh, as 
you know, we were becoming, the United States was becoming a global power. Uh, the Spanish-American War was a, was kind of the first example of us going out into the world and, uh, in this case, you know, invading it, invading a, a foreign country and uh, doing it with uh, a certain idea about what we were supposed to be doing. You know, we were bringing freedom to the world and uh, trying to liberate people. Now, that's a much more complicated story and, uh, you know, not always, not always a good one. Um, we've often done this with uh, as an excuse for a lot of other things, but I think it's thread that runs through the last, you know, now we're almost 121 years since since that war. And we still talk about our position in the world as one of bringing freedom to the world, of improving the world. And, and I think that, that that really is a, is a, a way of thinking that we're, keep, we're going to keep going with. And, and it's something that, to understand, you really have to go back to this moment in, in 1898. So what exactly happened in 1898? So in 1898, it was the third year of a revolution or a rebellion by the Cubans against the Spanish. The Spanish had occupied Cuba for almost 400 years. And they had uh, really been, during that rebellion, had been incredibly brutal against the Cubans. Uh, They killed over 100,000 Cubans. And Americans saw this happening and and were, were motivated to do something about it. Now, Americans were also concerned about business interests. Uh, they also saw Cuba as an opportunity to expand our business interests. And so there was a lot going on in terms of why we wanted to go to war. And then in early 1898, there was uh, the, the famous and infamous explosion uh, that sank the USS Maine, uh, the battleship in Havana Harbor. And that was that was blamed on the Spanish. And, and uh, we didn't go to war right away, but all of these things, came together to force President McKinley to decide that America had to go to war to uh, resolve these many, many different conflicts. And and so over the next couple of months, the United States built up an army, including the Rough Riders under Theodore Roosevelt, and we, we invaded Cuba and knocked the Spanish out pretty quickly, actually. Okay, so how does that portend uh, as we are reassessing our place in the world going into 2020? That's a fascinating story, but... Yeah. No, I think that it's um, a lot of the questions that people had about what was America's role in the world uh, back in 1898 are are a lot of the same questions we have today. Uh, People talking about, well, yes, we need to defend our interests and we need to promote our values, but armies are expensive and wars are expensive, and so how do we balance those things? And is is that the country we want to be? Do we want to be a country that... Uh, gets involved in everyone else's business. And in 1898, the answer uh, was yeah. Uh, people decided, yes, yeah, that's what we want to do. Not everybody, but, but that was the consensus. And I think we're, at, we're facing the same question today. You know, do, we, do we need to be involved in Afghanistan? Do we need to be involved in Syria? All these other countries where we have military operations, do we need to be uh, involved in every potential conflict? You know, I'm not arguing one way or the other, but I think that those are very important questions. And uh, absolutely will be the central foreign policy question for all of the candidates going into next year's election. So I, a lot of polling says that Americans don't want to be involved in every, uh, you know, in, in every part of the, in every hemisphere, every part of the world, and that Americans want to see more of our troops come home. Um, but, but again, it takes something enormous to make Americans become united and unified in their resolve to want to send our young men and women out to, to war to, to die on behalf of a cause. We have to be completely united in that. Otherwise, the polls are usually against war. So mm-hmm. how do you see the, the how do you see it shaping up? As President Trump actually ran on lessening our foreign entanglements, and he has tried to do that. But whenever he tries to pull us out of any region, everyone, including the, the military leaders, um, Pentagon, Defense Department, they all come out and strongly... You know, it's it's like they're unified in their desire to keep every troop we've got all over the world in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think this is the uh, the difficult part of any foreign conflict, right? Is uh, it it's really easy to get involved, and oftentimes uh, a lot of passion and not a lot of reason goes into the decision to go to war. Uh, but then when it comes to making us, you know, the the tough but reasoned decision to withdraw, 
you have a lot of arguments against that. And, you know, it's what kept us in Vietnam for so long. It kept us in Iraq so long. It's why we're still in Afghanistan. And, you know, you're absolutely right. This is not something that uh, you can just say, well, the polls say, say this, and therefore we're, we're going to pull out. There are, there are interests that are out there keeping us there, and whether it's military or, or what have you. So, you know, it's, and, and, you're, and also you're right, President Trump has been very strong about why he wants to withdraw, and, uh, and yet it's harder than, harder than it sounds. So I think that's where, that's where this debate is going to be, because it's not just enough to say, well, this is where I stand. You really have to commit, I think, as a leader to pushing against um, more conflict, but also, also pulling us out of the conflicts where we don't belong. So, and just looking towards 2020, because you mentioned that, um, I I don't hear very much from the Democratic candidates about where they are on foreign entanglements. In fact, Mm -hmm. so much of the conversation on that side is centered around issues that Americans have already kind of spoken on. And it's like, we will, you know, basically a series of do-overs on a lot of different issues. But the foreign policy piece is something that's current that I think Americans have an opinion on. And a lot of the Democratic candidates in a, in a horse race like they have, because there are so many of them, they could really delineate themselves by actually having a policy on foreign entanglements, whether they're for it or against it, and what that looks like. Like, if, they, if they're against it, how do you get the military leadership on your side? Because one thing President Trump didn't do was explain to us as Americans, he said he wanted to pull troops back and bring them home, but he never explained how he would get the generals and the you know heads of state departments and all that to come alongside him to help facilitate that. And so th- instead of him fighting Democrats or the American people, he's actually fighting the heads of our, our military and trying to get that done. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I haven't really heard much from the candidates either. And, and you know, even looking around, there's, there's very little on their, on their website and certainly in their public statements that point toward any kind of creative thinking. Because, you know, like you said, it's one thing to take a position and uh, and to say, well, you're for or against, you know, particular, you know, withdrawing us from Afghanistan, let's say. But but uh, as President Trump has found, it's, it's much harder uh, to, to actually do that. And like you said, you really have to have an articulated set of arguments and, and a very forceful position to, to bring around the military and also persuade the military that that's the right decision, because they're going to have their own arguments, and so far they've been the ones that have have won the day uh, against the administration. Yeah, but you know what's funny about that, Clay, is they win the argument against the administration, and they stay there, but they haven't won over the American people. So I've Mm -hmm. seen no major shift in uh, polling or anything that points to Americans saying, you know what, Um, you know... Mattis was right. We do still belong in Syria and the middle. You know, I haven't seen that at all. I've seen a lot of frustration on online social media, which, again, that's anecdotal. You can't really quantify that. If you're visiting like 10 websites, there could be 10 others where people are overjoyed. But I just haven't seen a big, huge groundswell of support for us staying over in the Middle East and doing what we're doing. And and the resulting number of people Mm -hmm. who come from the Middle East that are now they're coming to America as refugees in huge numbers. And we're that those are connected. Our foreign entanglements are what bring more refugees to our country than any other country in the world. We ha- we kind of sure. feel responsible. We have to bring them here. Yeah, I don't think people understand what we're doing in these foreign wars, uh, and that's the first job of, of a leader is to explain why we are spending so much money, why we are putting American lives at risk. What is what is the purpose of that? And it may be clear to policymakers, uh, although I maybe not. I'm not going to speak for them, but uh, but it's not clear to the American public, and that is a, a recipe for for a long term, long time, long term failure. Uh, that was the problem in Vietnam. You know, when people started turning against Vietnam, it, it didn't. We didn't withdraw, but it undermined the war effort. And the same thing is going to happen now with Syria or Afghanistan. Um, I think it, it saps our leadership and it saps our, our morale when we don't have an explanation for what we're doing. Or, conversely, to have someone make a very strong case for why we don't belong. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, but I, 
So I, I, I did I did read a lot of what was put out during that time when the president said he was going to draw down forces in Syria and, and some other places. And, and uh, Mattis said, no, no, you can't do that because the minute he he made comparisons to other times, like when President Obama said, you know, we've won over there and he removed some troops. And then that was when we saw the rise of ISIS, a completely new organization that was even more brutal than Al Qaeda. But. Mm-hmm. There has there there can't so I I've been arguing you're not the only one I've brought this up with Clay when when we have foreign policy guests on the show and they say well we're kind of stuck in the Middle East in perpetuity because the things there will never change and if we don't stay there then the war comes to us here but I would I would argue we already have the war going on here because we've had significant terror attacks here and as you pointed out. One of the most important things our government can do is acknowledge that taxpayers, we fund the government, we vote for the people who work there, that we don't support something anymore. And they Mm -hmm. may have their own reasons for wanting to do it, but we as taxpayers are the ones who should be the final decision makers and arbiters of how that money is spent. And you're right when you say they don't really, we've got no explanation, we've got no clear plan going forward. We just know we're going to be there forever, and that—that's to me, it's—it's it's so untenable. But but here we are. Yeah, and I think this to, to bring it back to what I think started with with the 1898 and the Rough Riders is hmm. is uh, this belief that the answer needs to be military power, and there's a way to engage the world without putting American lives at risk, and that's diplomacy. And American through the 20th century was a great diplomatic power, but it's someplace where I'd say over the last certainly under the last this administration, but even really going back the last couple of decades, there's been uh, a weakening of our diplomatic resolve. What is the point? What is the, the goal? Why do we have a strong diplomatic core? And people, we, I, I'd say there have been some leaders who, who understand that, but also many who, uh, who sort of have let the emphasis on diplomacy slide. But there have been many conflicts in the world where the United States has intervened diplomatically, not sending troops, but have actually and is that, and, and has actually achieved great results, much better than we ever could with military intervention. But it's often something that doesn't make the headlines, and it's not it's not uh, uh, it's not sexy in the way that military uh, intervention is. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't draw people passionately. But it's absolutely the thing that I think right now we need a lot more of. So that we don't have to spend so much of our of our resources and our soldiers' lives overseas. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I see no one talking about diplomacy, and I I do wish that in the uh, there's like these town halls, there de- there are debates. They've been all over from CNN. They've even had them on Fox. Some of the Democratic candidates have gone on to Fox News. I don't hear them asking these questions, or if they are. These aren't mm-hmm. the, the news bites that are making, you know, the big stories afterwards. Um, but it, it's something that needs to be discussed because the the most important thing about the military that we have today is that it's a volunteer service and it's mm-hmm. filled with Americans. It's, we don't we don't import mercenaries. We don't bring in foreigners to work in our military. Our military is all American. And so there right. should be some feeling of responsibility to the families who send the troops over that we would know what we're doing and where we're going and why. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So where can people find the book on June 4th? That's tomorrow. How, where can they find yep. this? This this is your first book? I, I don't know much about your writing as, oh, thus no, far. I've, I've had, a few, had a few books. My previous book was about was the history of the Civil Rights Act of ah. 1964. So that came ah. out about five years ago. And, and then this book will be out tomorrow. Uh, it's already in bookstores, but you can order it online at Amazon or BarnesNoble.com starting tomorrow. And, um, you know, I hope everyone who's listening buys a copy, writes a review, and, and enjoys it. <laughs> All right. Well, I will encourage people, head over to Amazon where you can order the book and get it to your house in two days or less with your Prime account. Or if you like buying your books in person, Clay just told you where to go. Head over to Barnes & Noble's. Thank you so much, Clay, for joining in today. Great discussion, and I look forward to talking to you again. Hey, thanks. I enjoyed it. All right, thank you. Uh, Clay Risen is the Senior Opinion Editor for the New York Times, and he's an author of many books, the latest one being The Crowded Hour. It's out tomorrow, but you can buy it today anywhere where books are sold. We'll be back with your calls at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. I'm Stacy Washington.
This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. When Lauren and I first married, we prayed together in the evenings. Now that I'm no longer coaching, we find the best time to pray together is in the mornings. Early on, we asked God for two things. First, that he would give us his infinite wisdom and direction. And second, that he would put us on the same page. And he's done that. Over the years, we've come to realize that when we're frustrated with each other or if things aren't going right in our lives, it's because we haven't spent time praying or communicating about spiritual matters. It's true. The more time you spend with God, the more fulfilling your life and your marriage will be. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Yo, 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 what up, Seth? Yo, what's up, Mike? How you doing? Man, I'm good, bro. Just let the club, you know, <laughs> the usual. The club? Man, them clubs don't love back, man. You ain't learned yet. You better slow down, dude. Ah, come on, Seth. You remember those days. We used to turn up together, man. Used to. Used to, brother. I'm on something much different. Like what, though? I mean, that Jesus music you be rapping about or beatboxing or whatever you be doing. I'm saying, though, that's how I worship. God gave me rap, so I give it back. Why, though? Gospel rap is boring, man. Boring? There's nothing boring about the ransom that ransomed me with himself. Took me off the shelf to transform me into my best. Surrounding me with those of like minds, he drops bombs. Some of which is found on UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Donald Trump's America. The White House insists President Trump's plan to place tariffs on goods from Mexico to stop illegal immigration is not a threat, but a promise. White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney on Fox News Sunday. I fully expect these, these tariffs to go on to at least the 5% level uh, on June 10th. The president is deadly serious. Also here at home, there is continued talk about former special counsel Robert Mueller. Will he testify before Congress? GOP Representative Doug Collins said also on Fox, he thinks House Judiciary Committee Chair Gerald Nadler will stop short of a subpoena on Mueller. I don't believe he really wants to talk to Robert Mueller because it's better for him to continue a narrative that uh, Robert Mueller said things or implied things that he's trying to imply to the American people as impeachment. The president begins a three-day state visit to the United Kingdom today with a formal dinner with Queen Elizabeth and a stop to mark the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landing. Gernal Scott, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I fully expect these, these tariffs to go on to at least the 5% level uh, on June 10th. The president is deadly serious about fixing the situation at the southern border. This is not the first time I'm on your program talking about what's happening on the Mexican-U.S. border. We've been talking about it for months. Six months ago, we told everybody it was a, a, an emergency situation. Very few people believed us. In fact, I talked with you about how the Democrats even refused to believe the facts six months ago. So it's real. We had a group of 1,000 people, not, not in different times, one group of 1,000 people walk across the border uh, just in the last couple of days. 2,500 people are coming over every single day as opposed to 700 just two years ago. So the, the numbers are huge, the situation is real, and the president is deadly serious about fixing the problem. And that was Mick Mulvaney, White House Chief of Staff, and he was on with uh, Chris Wallace talking about the tariff threat. And Really, it's not a threat. The tariffs are set to begin in just a few short days. And we've got an amazing opportunity here for Mexico to finally stop the madness. And so I I thought he was fantastic there. It was a great interview, the whole thing. I also found uh, this piece by Rachel Bavard. And I am so like, Rachel, you and me, girl, we're friends now. This piece is amazing. Um. And I have to say here, when we're talking about what we can do at the border, there's so much common sense, but enforcing our own laws would be the first thing I would do. Um, So we'll get to that in just a sec. I love it when we have our callers and you can join in at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. 
Becky in Louisiana. Hey, girl. Thanks for calling the show. Oh, hi, Stacy. I wanted to speak to you. I had to notice the gentleman that you were interviewing was pretty good at sidestepping the issue. And you said, well, what's the answer coming from the Democrats? And I love that. And I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'm concerned about the men. I looked at the failed systems. I looked at the progressive being promoted in a state department and in the military. And I am a military vet myself, so I've seen it from the inside and outside. And uh, I agree with you. We want to know where our men are. Why are they there, men and women? And I have an additional question. Sure. I think why can't? Why, when it comes to our special forces, why have we lost so many unaccountably over maybe the last 10 years? Mm. That's got to deal with training or Absolutely. something. No, you're right. You are so right. Thank you for your service, Becky, and, and especially for listening to the show and calling in today. It was great to speak with you. Um, I just, so I I think there's not a lot of answers out there. and. I don't I don't blame Clay because he wrote this book about Theodore Roosevelt, the Rough Riders and the Dawn of the American Century. And the answer to my question about why the Democrats aren't discussing this. I mean, I did ask it genuinely. I wasn't being sarcastic, but it's also it's kind of rhetorical because we discussed here on the program many times that we there are a lot of things that the Democrats don't discuss. And and we will get to um, some audio of Kirsten Gillibrand. She was on Fox News just acting a fool she made an utter fool of herself um really yelling at the audience and chris wallace about abortion and these are the sacred cows of the democrats and so you know it used to be i'll I'll just can i can i just get real with you for a second here can we just can we talk as that lady used to say joan rivers um i used to when i was on weekend radio on on commercial station i i would i would have topics about abortion and I would bring them up and I would always get, you know, two responses. Some people would email me and say, thank you for bringing it up. Not enough people are discussing this. And other people would say, you talk about abortion too much. You know, it's like the only thing you can talk about. And it's not. I mean, I covered so many topics, foreign policy, military, culture, marriage, family, kids, education, um, the, the budget. I used to just rail about the budget. And during tax season, I would spend every weekend for like six weeks talking about monetary policy, um, Federal Reserve, you you name it, I, I covered it. But when I would talk about abortion, there were those two responses. Thank you for covering it. Or I can't believe you're covering it. Uh, you're covering it too much. Now, I don't have I never get anybody who says you shouldn't cover that when people email me and they disagree with me about abortion. They're like, Oh, you know what? I disagree with you. A woman has this or we should be able to kill. You know, they don't say kill, but we should be able to have abortions whenever we want to. It's our body, our choice. But no one ever says you shouldn't talk about that. And that is part and parcel to the the this evolution where the only thing that Democrats want to discuss is how they we need to do more liberal things on social issues. And so I, I feel like and correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think I'm wrong. Liberals have become uninformed on foreign policy. Just think about the last few times you've heard liberals talk about foreign policy. Think about the things that President Obama would say and do when he was doing foreign policy on behalf of our country. And think about how he he was inept at it. He really was. He was great at taking selfies and looking cool while his wife was in a rage because he was sitting next to some cute foreign dignitary. But he was not good at negotiating with them to get things done on behalf of Americans. And so on the heels of that really poor performance by President Obama, you now have an entire party of people on the left who simply don't discuss it because why discuss it? It's, it's not the hot button issue. It's not the topic du jour. And I don't, I'm not interested in it. I want to rail about how we need more abortions. And I'll tell you what, it's not that I don't un- understand, like, haven't we all been in a situation where you're like, ooh. I don't know much about that. I'm not going to opine because it is better to keep your mouth shut than to open your mouth and show that you know nothing. It is that is a maxim that is true. It's biblical. But it is not okay when you plan on leading a congressional district or being 50 percent of the representation for millions of people in a state as a senator. Or if you have laid claim to the idea that you would make a great commander in chief, 
then it is your responsibility to know about foreign policy. It's your responsibility to be not just buffed up. I mean, knowledgeable. You know, that's one thing that people don't discuss. Foreign policy for presidential candidates, when you announce that you're running for the presidency, there's a whole bevy of individuals out there, not just at think tanks, but think tanks are, are one, one uh, source People who have experience in the federal government, sometimes decades of experience, who once you announce you're ready for the president, they're available. It doesn't mean they're reaching out to you. Some will. But for the most part, it's a a matter of you saying, yeah, we're going to do these campaign stops, but we're also going to take some time out when we're in this state to meet with this one. He was the head of the State Department or meet with this one. You know, I want to I want to learn more about this particular conflict that we're involved in, or I want to understand this or that. And you can also get briefings from State Department officials, Department of Homeland Security officials. Once you run for the presidency and you announce and you're mounting a campaign, you can get access to information that it's not, I don't don't believe it's classified. It's not classified, but it's information that if you want it, if you want briefings, you can get them. So what I'm saying with all of that is um, it's, it's, There's no excuse for being this befuddled by what we're doing abroad. There's just no excuse for it. And to not have any plans for addressing the concerns of the American people who want to know just how long will we be entangled. Now, you guys know we've we've had Professor Professor Nicholas Grossman on the program many, many times. And he's always amazing at explaining, you know, his position is we don't really have a tenable exit strategy for the Middle East. And it's because the nature of the problem over there is, you know, it's an unwinnable area, unwinnable war, um, a region of conflict, and we will be involved there. But does that mean at the current level, does, does it mean there's no, there's no one in America is what you're telling me? How many, we have so many tens of thousands of geniuses, tens of thousands of rocket scientists. Ten, I mean, we got a lot of smart people here. No one can figure out a way for us to extract more of our troops or to spend l- less money there. No one can figure it out. I tend not to believe that. So I, I don't, I, again, I don't blame Clay. I think, I think he gave a really great interview, but it is concerning to me that we, we also don't hold any of our elected officials accountable, our Republican senators. We, we're not asking anyone, what are your plans for getting this done? And, and I, I readily admit we have a kind of, uh, it's like we're firemen with two trucks and there's 10 fires going at all the time, all at all times. So we're running around with our two trucks, just trying to get between all 10 fires, managing five fires per truck. That's it's untenable. It's ridiculous. It's, it's exhausting. It's a lot of wear and tear on the little trucks we've got. And you know, we keep running out of water. You know what I'm saying? This is what it feels like with all of the different crazy actions that are being taken by our federal government supported by the Democrats. But the answer to all of that obviously is one, we, even if we had 10 fire trucks, we can't manage all the problems that are going on here because they're all rooted in sin. And we have to be just crystal clear that the answer and antidote to that is Jesus Christ, right? Not, it's not that we need more fire trucks. We need more of him. We need, we need to plug further into that power source. And I was just, um, someone put on here, it's one of the people in one of the chat rooms I've I'm going to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. I don't care how the wind blows and waves crash. I'm going to focus on the one who is the author and finisher of my faith. That is the key here. But also, once once we've done that, once we've plugged in, we have to be willing to hold these people accountable. And when our Republican elected officials are up for re-election and they start coming back into the district and start having these town halls, it is perfectly reasonable as we're going through, you know, you hear something on the show and you're like, oh, that is something I want to just make yourself a little running list. Ask them. You can email them. You can write them a letter. You can wait until the town hall and ask them in person or you can send them the note now so they can start getting prepared. Look, this is going to be something that me and a bunch of other constituents are going to want to hear from you from. And that is lessening our entanglement in the Middle East and lowering the number of people that we have to bring into our country because we're in the Middle East. Yeah. What do you got to say about that? That would be an appropriate way of dealing with what we're seeing here. Uh, So I want to, oh yeah, I want to make sure that we get to this, this hour. Um, 
So the key to resolving the U.S. asylum crisis, we have the border crossings at the highest level in uh, 12 years, and congressional Democrats are intent on blocking any action to resolve the issue because these are their voters. So the president on Thursday rolled out this new policy aimed at encouraging Mexico to do more. And the three efforts that the president wants to see Mexico take are more vigorous efforts by them to secure the border between Guatemala and the Mexican state of Chiapas. And um, it's a 400, it's a 500 mile border. So easy to manage Um, crackdowns on organizations that help migrants travel through Mexico into the United States and align with Mexico on asylum. This is a reference to the safe country agreement that is common practice throughout the rest of the world, but with which Mexico refuses to engage. So we know that the people are coming here because they can get jobs and they're coming here because we've allowed so many of them to come here that now they have enough family here that they feel like even if they don't get a job, they can move in with someone. It's not like they're coming here and finding their own home. They're coming here and once they're released, they go straight to family. And family takes them in because that's what family does. You know, if you know you're coming from a war-torn garbage country and you're living in a great country and the great country you're living in has zero borders, then of course you're going to send for your family and have them come on in. Of course you're going to take care of them. What is the alternative? So we, when we're talking about the uh, enforcement, Congress does need to change existing statutes to make permanent fixes. But both parties have stubbornly refused to undertake this effort. So this is where the safe third country doctrine comes in. Under international law, known as the Dublin Regulation, migrants seeking asylum are required to claim it in the first safe country they enter. I've talked about this many times before. The theory behind this is that if migrants are truly seeking shelter from persecution, rather than simply trying to use the system to reach a specific destination, they will stop in the first place that they find relief in. It also means that asylum seekers will be much more likely to return to their home country, which is not what current asylum seekers are doing. They're coming here to become permanent Americans, getting money from our social services systems, our welfare systems, and staying here forever. They are not coming here as asylum seekers because asylum seekers are saying, my country right next to you is war-torn. If I come to you, I can be kept safe and my children can be safe until it's safe to return to my country. These people aren't ever planning on going back to Honduras or Guatemala, just like the Mexicans who came here never plan on going back to Mexico permanently. Oh, they travel down there, but they keep coming back here because this is where they would prefer to live. And I don't know, you, like, do you ever drive down, like when you're driving, do you ever kind of look and say to yourself, what does this place look like? Not to me as an American, you're used to this place, you're used to wherever you live here in this country. Um, have, or maybe not in your own state, like not in Missouri, but when I went to California for national religious broadcasters, I did this, we were in the Uber and I was looking out the window and I tried to imagine, like wipe my mind clear and imagine seeing what I was seeing for the first time. Cause I've only been to California one other time and I'd never been to Anaheim to try to see it as someone who was seeing it for the first time and kind of taking it in. And I do that. Sometimes I go to different parts of this country that I've never been to. I try to see it as if I'm obviously I'm seeing it for the first time, but not as an American. See it as a place. Is it better? Is it worse? What does it look like to me? I don't care where you go, unless you're in the inner cities of America or, you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco. If you look around America, you see nothing but blessings and prosperity. Even in our poverty stricken areas, it's better than Honduras and El Salvador. And that's the draw. And President Trump's fighting an uphill battle to stop it. Let's keep praying for him. All right. That's our one of the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. God bless you. I'm Stacey Washington.